Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the writer and musician Johnny Dawks. Johnny's new book, Shadow Man, Records of a Life Corrupted, tells the story of the sexual abuse he suffered in adolescence and the impact that had on his life, his family and his career over the decades that followed. Johnny recently revisited a number of the songs he recorded as part of the band Finn in the 90s and came to realise that all of them had been subconscious accounts of his abuse. He decided to re-record the songs and release them as an album alongside the book. It's a really fascinating, unique and moving creative project and Johnny is a really courageous, smart and talented communicator. I really hope you enjoy listening to this conversation. Johnny, welcome to The Reset. Hi. Hello, Sam. Thanks so much for joining me today. This is a fascinating and unique creative project. Um, Tell me about how it first came about. Uh, It first came about, um, really, uh, the book uh, started shortly after my father died, about two years ago, um, that I was the subject of historical um sexual abuse uh as i later discovered was my little brother uh by the same person who was uh in within our fa- within our extended family and uh while my father was um dying as it turned out in hospital uh several of my um siblings expressed the desire for uh it turned out for the abuser to be able to come to the hospital which i objected to very strongly and it opened up a um what's really become a bit of a schism between us uh because i didn't feel that i should have been asked that question and it smacked of a uh a lack of ability i felt uh, in my family to actually understand what I and my brother had undergone. And I wrote a letter to my siblings, which I print in the book in um, in full, which was largely ignored. And I felt really that the only way I could explain myself clearly was to write what ended up being the book Shadow Man. So... The, really, the genesis of the book was a sort of a letter that got out of control, I suppose you could say. Uh, and and how did the, the music and your lyrics come to play a, a, such a fundamental part in writing the book? So while I was writing the book, I so I, I was I I was um I was basically abused between I say in the book ten to sixteen. Actually it didn't become physical till I was about eleven. But the ground was laid for it. The, you know, grooming, I guess you would call it, began uh, from the age of 10. And um, when I had uh, stopped it, I got to 16. And as I detail in the um, chapter that's titled Fuck Off, because I told him to fuck off. Mm. And at at the point that I expressed that sort of adult energy, the physical abuse stopped. And it was shortly, it was almost exactly around that time that I sort of uh, picked up a guitar and started playing. And it, as even as a kid, I was never one for 
particularly learning other band songs almost as soon as I got a guitar I I worked out a way of connecting my dad's cassette decks together so that I could basically do what was really rudimentary sort of you know recording putting guitar parts together and the first songs that I started to write um I had no idea that they pertained to what had happened to me but it became quite obvious that those lyrics started to creep in and I think I think what I examine in the book I mean in in a line Shadow Man the book is I was abused as a child and then I spent 30 years writing about it without having the first idea that that's what I was writing about and I really discovered that as I was writing the book I um I started combing through because I've kept a folder with pretty much every lyric I've written from 16 to about 10 years ago, which is a terrible waste of paper, really. But um, um, I started going through this folder and I literally discovered every other lyric completely blindsided me with how it was almost like I'd been keeping a diary when I was writing these songs. And they start from 16, 17. And then I started a, a sort of indie band in 92 who became sort of reasonably well-known on the fringes of the music press, really. We were sort of like Britpop also rands, I suppose. But, um, you know, sort of had got our fair share of, you know, press and airplay and all that stuff. But what what was fascinating to me when I was writing the book was these songs that I'd written, not the least of which was a song in 1992 called Shadow Man, which are, um, you could call them cries for help. Or I think what I realized as I've been writing, as I was writing the book was that what I was doing lyrically, and it then carried on because I then went on to write comedy and to write um, feature film and sitcom and all sorts was it was it's almost like I was sort of self-therapizing I was writing songs that I think I was trying to explain the inexplicable to myself if that doesn't sound crazy so what's interesting to me is the idea that it was like what had happened to you the experience of of the abuse you kind of shut away and it was only being expressed, I don't know, subconsciously or unconsciously is the right is the right term here. So you weren't explicitly thinking about it when you were writing at all. So were these genuinely repressed memories? How how did those experiences sort of exist in your mind between the age of sixteen when it ended, and 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 more recently when you rediscovered these lyrics and started writing the book? Good question because. Um... I think, and I didn't. I didn't mention any of this. There's a there's a chapter in the book called, and I just call it "Who Knew," where I talk about um, my first wife, who I met when I was seventeen, and I was with for eighteen years. So I was, you know, I was. I didn't uh, ever discuss it with her. My best friend from who I met when I was eighteen, nineteen pretty much still my best friend now. Um, I didn't mention it to him for 18, 19 years. 
So where did those, what were those memories for me? I think they did gradually surface until eventually I told, I actually told my little brother in 2002, 2003. I think they really, they only existed when I was writing a lot of those songs. I felt I was writing about abuse from, a, from an academic perspective. Mm. And it seems extraordinary now to to think that that I could have fooled myself to that degree if that's what I was doing. But that's the only explanation I can come up so, with. Really. So, so Johnny, were you in denial that it had actually happened to you? I'm not sure I could be. I would say that I was in denial because t- to say I was in denial would mean maybe if somebody had asked me about it, and if if I think. For example, if I'd got into a conversation with somebody and somebody had ever said to me, have you been sexually abused? I I think I would probably have hesitatingly said yes, but I was only in dialogue with myself mm. because I was the only witness to what had happened. And so I, I don't know whether, whether those songs were a gradual surfacing of memories i don't know i do say I, you know I, I go into this in the book and say that i was i think i was trying to explain things to myself for years that i, I that were inexplicable that i just couldn't understand i suppose and just to be clear um that, that your abuser as you mentioned at the beginning here remained a part of your extended family um yeah. you've got Quite a lot of siblings. Yeah, I've got and, brothers and five sisters. And 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 just just for our listeners who, who might not have read the book yet, how how did he remain in your family? Uh, he married one of my sisters. And so, what was so what was life like after that? Was that just something that you had to block out? That you had nothing to do with? It was. It's so hard to explain because. Um, and it takes I do I try to explain this um, in the book because it takes a long time to somebody from the outside will go, what? How, how did that happen? And I think partly there was always a within the family. It was always just like, oh, that person's just a bit odd, you might say, mm. you know. And. But as soon as uh, as soon as I uh, acknowledged what had happened to me to my younger brother, uh, then everything blew up. But then, as I detail in the book, it then again through pressures that are not uncommon in families where these things surface, it was pretty quickly shut down again. Mm. Mm. Which is a difficult, yeah, you know, it's a very difficult thing to kind of even now to talk about really yeah it's interesting why that happens i mean you know you write you know in in a really touching way about your early childhood and paint a picture of a family that was you know close and had a lot of fun together you know and your dad was hard working and and therefore absent but you felt like you were loved by him and your mum and there was a there was something you know although it it was a big raucous family that's the picture i get and so it wasn't like yeah. a cold, emotionless family. So as a child, you must have felt like, 
well, for better or for worse, these people have got my back. And yet you're right. I've heard these stories before about when something that is dysfunctional about the family, sometime someone actually calls that out and names it and starts speaking about it, people can't cope and they just have to almost deny it. Well, there was a there was a there was a, a fundamental factor in all of that that because you know what you're describing at the beginning there of a a ramshackle, pretty hard up but quite irreverent and fun family unit. What happened was uh, when I was uh, young. In fact, the abuse uh, took place because I started going to a boys club that was run by a Catholic organization called Opus Dei. My mum became a member of Opus Dei when I was uh, very young. I was, I think she probably was introduced to the organization when I was five or six. But by the time I was 10 or 11, she'd become quite uh, uh, devout, I suppose. I mean, she was a devout anyway, but she became a uh, pretty uh, keen uh apostle for opus day and it undermined my father i it's my belief and i explain it very very um clearly and um carefully i think in the book is that you know when you're when you're a kid when something like this happens to you you don't know what it is you don't know that sexual abuse that inevitably starts through friendship, uh, having time spent on you, being given attention. It's, it's like, you, it's in a way, you don't know what, why that's wrong. It's almost like an attentive parent's role to spot those things, mm. you know. Mm. What happened in our family was when my mum became very, very uh, wrapped up in Opus Day, it uh, disenfranchised my dad. And I actually talk about this later in the book. After my mum died, uh, I was with my dad. My dad was very was quite distant, actually, um, emotionally. And I was I was with my dad uh, alone, actually, in the in the studio that I'm doing this interview in, and. Um, I said to my dad, I said, you know, when, when we were little, when Opus Day came along and mum became incredibly devout as a Catholic, way more than she had been when they'd, when they'd met, I said it must have been almost like she'd had an, she was having an affair. Mm. And my dad teared up, which he'd never, ever done. And my dad said, when your mother found Opus Day, I lost my best friend. And I think what happened is that 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 created a schism for us as children between our parents that allowed this outside influence, this pollutant to come in. And that was especially potent when that pollutant was a member of this Catholic organization. I mean, it's, 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 it's very complex to explain now, but um, basically when I was introduced to the man who abused me, he very quickly became what's termed in Opus Dei my spiritual advisor, which mm. means that they, and again, I, I, I go into a lot of detail in a couple of chapters about how this happens. I mean, it's pretty iniquitous, really. 
this person gets to know you, you you have to kind of tell them your innermost thoughts because they become like a conduit to god almost mm. i probably sounds absolutely barking mad but you know so i was in a situation where my mum's a devout member of this organization this guy is also a member of this organization and he is almost given sort of control of me if you like and and I say in the book as well, I say, you know, from my parents' point of view, with eight of us, you know, oh, well, look, that's great. He's kind of looked after, you know, that's one yeah. that's to worry about. It's like childcare, free childcare. Exactly that. Exactly. But then by the time I was 12 or 13, I was going and staying at his house. And again, I did book, you know, he, 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 he was in Oxford and then moved to the town that we lived in, in Didcot. And I would still stay at his house. Mm. as a young adult well as a young adult i was i was a teenager and you know i, I, I was saying but on what planet is that okay mm. how was that deemed healthy but it was because it was all bound up with these notions of you know um, religion and it's it's kind of crazy and you know uh you know as as you'll discover that throughout the book the, the detail of what happened is is you know the Everyone who reads the book gets to a point where they go, well, this is unbelievable. And you go, well, yeah, it is really, if you look at it in the cold light of day now. But it's mm. gradually, and they have to be viewed through the prism of that religious organisation. Also, in families, when you're young, in all sorts of ways, everything is normalised. Because when you're young, you don't know any different. So families That's- can normalise pretty bizarre things pretty quickly. So actually reading it, I kind of thought, I thought you did a very good job of describing the incremental way in which this happens. And that's, and and I can totally see why it was normalised. You're in a big family. There is this religious group that on the surface at least seems actually pretty, a pretty healthy thing. It was actually a bit of a sanctuary for you when you struggled at school or whatever, you know, you had this sort of separate family and social life going on. And actually Aside from the religious aspect, I'm, I'm reading it and thinking, yeah, I can totally see how this would have been appealing in that in that thing. Yeah. And it's just interesting for anyone from all sorts of different families, no matter even if they haven't been through the you know the abuse that you have. That like we all grow up and look back at our families and the way they did things and the way they behaved and the things that were normal. And there's a point for everyone, I think, where you think, holy fuck, that wasn't normal at all. But every, I mean, that's the, the, you know, I think that's the thing where, um, you know, like um, one of my kids has uh, has been, you know, in a, in quite a long term relationship, and and she went, oh my God, you you never realise how mad other families are until you really spend time with them. And you go, yeah, oh. yeah. The thing isn't it is no one knows, no one ever really knows. I mean, when you when you're you know when you it's like if you could see other people's relationships, yeah. From, it's like what (laughs) every family is basically a little bit like a cult and i don't mean to belittle the term cult because you know opus day really i don't think you refer to them as such but it ends up feeling you know it's like how most of us would understand a cult being you know i I try sam to i try to go out of my way in the book actually because it's very i would i don't you know i don't think i ever say and I, i don't ever say in the book it was Opus Day's fault. What happened to me? Because no. it wasn't, and it absolutely wasn't. I never and I, put, and, and I, like I say, you do do a good job of it, kind of coming across as 
like positive, you know, yeah. in, in in certain ways. I can I sense that you're not feeling negative about the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, I, I, I was abused, but I learned how to race race a go kart, so it wasn't all bad. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was, um, you know, it's not it's not Opus Day's fault that the guy running the boys' club had the predilections he did. Mm. But what a and I go into a lot of detail uh, is that there is a there is this conflict between what's a sin and what's a crime. And that's where that's where Catholicism gets into muddy waters all the time is mm. because the notion of confession and, you know, it's like God's law and the law. And mm. it, it gets very, very muddy mm. as I've experienced. You describe yourself as a, a pretty confident, cocky, mouthy, I think, sort of, uh, and, you know, funny adolescent young man. You obviously went on to have a lot of success in all different creative endeavours in your career. Um, you don't sort of um, conform to the stereotype of a victim, I put that in in quote marks, because that... So it's just interesting. There are stereotypes that, you know, are, are very inaccurate. What, how do you think it kind of, how do you think, what are the things you think that it did to you as a person, you know, uh, in those in that long period where you hadn't quite faced up to it or confronted it like you have done now? So we're talking, what, 20, 25 years? I think um, well, it's, it's such a hard thing to to actually unwrap that because it's there's a it's, it's you know without wishing this to become cliche overdrive it is chicken and egg because and i do say in the book i don't blame him for the fact that i was x y or z because it's entirely possible that's what i was like anyway and i think um i think one thing that did happen is in fact i'll, I'll, tr I'll try and explain what i feel exactly happened to me as a result of being abused as a child. I've said this to people a number of times over the years. I don't think the sexual abuse was the worst thing. My feeling is that what happened to me between the age of 10 and 16 is I was taught to mistrust my impulses and my instincts. I was basically taken to pieces and told, don't do this, don't do that, don't think this, don't think that. And I think that when I was 10, I was, I was, yeah, I was quite a cocky mouthy git and uh, you know, some things don't change, but um, I, I had a, I think what happened, but when, when if you if you took me at sixteen, I spent the next twenty years, in fact, probably longer, the next thirty years, being fundamentally mistrustful of my own instincts. I wouldn't even have been able to explain it in that way, actually. But um, when you are when you're deconstructed and, and and sort of rewired, which is what I think happened to me as a teenager. Um, you, yeah, you know, it, it affects how you form relationships because 
you know, you form relationships fundamentally through impulses. I like this person. I am drawn to this. I, and I think I was constantly, and I probably still do to an extent as well, constantly like second guessing. Mm. I talk at, at length in the book about the fact that I spent, you know, quite a lot of my adult life thinking, oh, how will this play? Mm. Which might not make sense to a lot of people. But, you know, it, it's something that even as a result of writing the book has actually been an enormous relief. Because I kind of, I kind of, you know, like people close to me, since I've written the book, I've actually calmed down a bit. But, you know, it, it is... I think I, I feel that what what happened to me was a I was I was taught not to trust myself, which I think is a terrible thing. And if someone shows you attention, love, care, affection, all of those things, is is it like a sense that you think, well, they might have a separate agenda? This might be a fake thing in order to, to lure that, me in. Is it hard to trust? That's definitely a it's a, what you, what you said there. That was you know somebody having an agenda i have uh, as an adult i have uh worried about whether people are being transactional with me but i feel that i have had a tendency to be to be transactional mm. as well um and whether this goes it's really hard to to, to actually assess to what degree that is as a result of what happened to you or not. And, I, you know, I, I'm at pains in the book a, a lot to say, you know, I'm not blaming every character foible I've ever had on what happened to me because, you know, without a control experiment set up when I was 10, which I think I'd be aware of if there had been one, um, you, you can't really tell, but it is definitely a... Uh, it definitely had that effect on me in that I, you know, I would second guess. I would, you know, because part part of what happened to me as a kid was I was told, you know, very early on, your family are like this, your brother's like that, don't do this, don't do that. And and it got worse from there on. So, yeah, but I mean, I'm probably sort of repeating myself a bit, but. Um, do you, I mean, what, what, have you ever confronted your abuser? Uh, I think, yeah, we had a weird sort of rapprochement of sorts about um, about 10 years ago before certain other things came to light. And I think I got to the point where I just wanted it to be okay. I wanted to leave it behind. But it was only very recently that I thought, actually, and I think this is what I'm doing in writing the book, is I'm going, look, you have this back. I've carried this for long enough. Mm. And I certainly feel like that. And obviously, uh, you know, I would I would assume that there, you know, to begin with, there are, there are feelings of, you know, shame associated with, with abuse victims. You yep. obviously now, you, you know, feel comfortable with being open about it. Mm -hmm. Is that how how did how did that happen? Was that just the, was that a sort of a when you realised that was the only way you were going to genuinely be able to get over it was to sort of 
get it out there completely? I think it's partly that, but um, I think um, I don't feel I don't feel any I don't feel any shame in the here and now saying no. I was sexually abused as a child. I had literally I feel shame for things that I've done as an adult that I think are as a result of characteristics that I had because of that abuse. Mm. I deal with it quite a lot in in the last chapter of the book. During during the course of writing the book, I came upon uh, an article in a, a magazine called Psychology Today, and it talked about um, the, the, the headline of it was um, uh, shame is the lie someone told you about yourself, which wow. is attributed, attributed it to Anais Nin. But in the in the course of trying to clear the quote from the estate of Anais Nin, they said to me, well, I don't know, mate, that's not one of hers. So, mm-hmm. so I went, oh, well, that's good. I don't have to pay for it. Um, <laughs> it's it's a great it's a great line and i went through the um through this uh paragraph where it said as an as a child who was sexually abused you will feel this and i i've annotated it in the book and i've gone yes you will feel this but yes i do you will be uh you will feel like you're an imposter like you don't deserve success yes i do you will struggle in your relationships with people. Yes, I have. Um, but yeah, but even it goes, you will kick against, um, you know, the law or whatever. And I go, well, actually, no, not really. And mm. you struggle as a parent. And I go, well, I, I try. I think I'm all right. You know, mm-hmm. I haven't just all of them. But yeah. it was really, it was, it was like looking in a mirror a lot of it. But actually, um, I don't feel, I don't feel, uh, shame for what happened to me it's how you're made to feel is where the shame comes from it's Mm. because abuse is part and parcel of being controlled and it's that i think it's the control and the perversion of your for me the perversion of my character was far more fundamental than the perversion yes Yes. I'm really fascinated by the way in which you describe the, the cathartic and therapeutic nature of music. You discovered music around the same time or you got much more into being creative with music around yeah. the time that the abuse ended. And and I think, you know, you're, to paraphrase a lovely line in, in the book, you say, you know, they should prescribe guitars rather than Prozac. Mm. Um, forgive me because I probably com- completely butchered that phrase, but... Uh, you, know, the, you get the point, get the point, is that it played a huge role in getting you through the years that followed. Um, yeah. And I'm fascinated by that, like the power of creativity and art, for, for, you know, as, as a sort of tool to cope with mental health problems. Uh, in my case, that's undoubtedly what happened. I actually wrote a song in 2010, fully aware of what had happened. and I wrote a song called The Virus about the fact that, you know, this is a virus that I think afflicts society more than anything, anything at all. Mm. Um, And I I wrote a a line in the song and it was addressing him, the abuser, and it said, the songs you seeded saved my life. And I think that's true. It's, I I picked up a, my sister had a, a sort of Spanish 
classical guitar and she get, showed me a couple of chords when I was like 15. And um, and I say in the book, I was immediately able to play Echo and the Bunny Men's first three singles. But, you know, I'm sure. Mm. But um, I think one of the one of the first uh, first things I learned to play on that guitar was um, the Bunny Men single Rescue, which I think is kind of quite pertinent. But yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was um, I've never felt that. It's funny because um, I've become good, really good friends with um, David Quantic, who used to write in the NME, mm, and mm. comedy together and stuff. And David wrote a review of an album I did um, about ten years ago, and he said, um, "It's it's with, with something, something, something. It's very personal, but then with Johnny, it's always personal, mm. and that's how I feel with music. I, I've I've always written." I was partly, you know, I don't know. It's um, yeah. I've never, I've never, I've never played cover versions particularly. I've never been interested. If you give me a guitar at a party or whatever, I'm absolutely hopeless. I mean, I'm hopefully start a gig, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not the man to give the guitar to. I'm not going to sit there and sing "Angels" by Robbie Williams or. or <laughs> I just don't have that in me and it makes me sort of cringe a bit i find it really i find it more embarrassing to play um like a bowie song in front of 30 people than i do playing a really confessional song in front of 400 people because it's it's i don't know for me it's always been bound up in i think i think when i got given a guitar and i started writing i think it was that internal me going I can tell you what's happened. Clearly, mm, mm. what I was trying to do for years was I was trying to say, I mean, look, when I wrote Shadow Man in 1992, the opening verse of Shadow Man is, all he wants is one ambiguous touch, a yeah. secret that's never discussed. He's an eight-armed beast with blood on his hands. He's the angel of death and a family man. It's like, and I genuinely thought I was writing from an academic perspective. So that I think graphic illustration of I was trying to say, look, this this has happened kind of thing. It's amazing reading the lyrics of that song and others now, but particularly Shadow Man. Uh, all your lyrics, of course, are, are run through the book. And, you know, as someone coming to this story knowing the end, sort of, sort of knowing the truth, reading those lyrics now to me, it just seems almost so. Exp it seems like a literal mm. description. It's amazing, you know how how literal it is once you know what it was about, and it's it is absolutely fascinating. I'm fascinated by the creative process and the, and particularly songwriting, which is something that's very alien to me. But I just am so amazed by people who can do it and the way in which it clearly is just something that you channel. And you're not always sure where it's coming from, maybe until years later. I've heard that said by many songwriters. And, and in your case, it's the most vivid sort of um, example. Um, but as the, you know, as the fact that you write music, play music, uh, also your other creative endeavors, you you write comedy and, and tip for TV and radio and you're an accomplished uh, film editor. Has that been just a a sort of a comfort for you and a source of sort of happiness and joy 
through the years. Film editing hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm astonished. I mean, you know, anytime I've sat in with an editor, I've just thought it's, it's like the most painful and arduous process in the world. But I know some people enjoy it. I do say in the book that it was like I, I, I've sort of I said I've, I've gravitated back or rather been gravitated back to editing. Uh-huh. It's like, um, and yeah, it's um, yeah, I mean, editing's uh, editing something I can do. Mm. So it's it came about by accident six, seven years ago. I started cutting a movie for a friend and it's just I seem to have gone from one to the next. But um, no, I don't, I don't, you know, I think it's um, I, I sort of. I don't make any, I don't have any sort of, um, um, it, hmm, it's difficult, but because I go into this in the book, it's like I've done, I've done a lot of things, but I've sort of haven't really particularly excelled at many things. And I think also I've, I've had a tendency to stop and start something else a lot. And, mm haven't really always broken through barriers and persisted with things enough. And mm. I don't, that's just something that is innate. Like I was, have a very short attention span or whether there's, I don't know. It's almost like whether my kind of synapses are a little bit kind of stunted somehow. But um, I think uh, I wouldn't make any sort of claims for myself as a songwriter but I think it, I think you're right. It is fascinating that I wrote these things that were so explicit, and that's why I called it Shadow Man Records of a Life Corrupted, mm. because they were they were they were document. It was almost like I documented what happened, and um, and that's partly why I've done the done the record to go with the book because in the in the course of um, I, I should probably explain. So the books. Um, the book's coming out in um, in tandem with a record, and I it, while I was writing the book, I kept well I didn't care I, I I picked up a guitar and I tried to play a couple of the old songs that I talked about in the book, and I couldn't I, I actually broke down, and I was really quite shocked. There's one a song called Squid that I wrote in '93 with uh, Finn, my band. We've been on tour for. A, couple of weeks with the tinder sticks and i wrote this song and again i talk about this a lot about the fact that i was a chameleon i just i copied other bands very very quite well mm. but you know i i think several reviewers sort of said well they they're good but they're not very original and i think that was it i was a bit of a sort of chameleon really but the lyrics were everything and actually at the end of this song squid it says, uh, you know, squid pulls away when I reach out my hand. Squid's been abused and his mind is confused in a way that he can't understand. Mm-hmm. And it was really explicit about my mental state and about the fact that I couldn't, I just couldn't engage with this subject, even though I was obviously prodding myself. You, you make a, a really interesting point about how you found yourself sort of being um sometimes aloof uh and and you know you took the attitude of no one can reject me if i'm the one yeah doing the rejecting yeah I no. found that was interesting i could relate to that a little bit and i and i and it seems to tie into what you're saying about not sticking with things maybe you move on before 
the before things could potentially go go bad, you're on to the next thing. Oh, uh, and not wanting it for me for years. It, it was from school through my working life. It was anathema to be part of a collective. Like um, I had an agent in um, in the early noughties who uh, was trying to get me to write on different shows. And I, I just I, I, I just couldn't I couldn't stand it. I wrote on a show called Monkey Dust for a while. Mm. And, uh, I didn't I didn't I bridled at being, you know, oh, we've got some a team of writers. I didn't want to be part of a team. And I, I really I don't. I'm not proud of that at all because actually I think I've probably excluded myself from a lot of things. But I think that started when I was at school around the time or just after, maybe in my, in my sort of when I was 13, 14, I was, when I was at the boys club, it was always I had to attract other kids to the boys club. I had to do what Opus Day called the apostolate. And I bollocksed friendships so badly by inviting these kids to this boys club and they would inevitably end up going what the fuck what's that all about? you know and and i think i around that time i thought oh well i'm gonna i'm gonna stand away from this then i'm gonna look i did it wasn't a conscious thing but i i, I spent my sort of you know once i got to 15 16 i gravitated to uh friendships outside of school so at school i would always be like oh, i've got something better going on mm, mm. i started you know buying clothes in 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 town all my schoolmates when i was sort of 16 17 were all kind of like preppy bride's head kind of thing mm. and i was wearing kind of like i look i look looked like i just walked off stage with the bunny men kind of thing mm. definitely i wanted to be i wanted to be different you know mm. i didn't of the 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 orthodoxy if you like and you know i've sort of carried that a bit in my working life which has probably hasn't really been terribly helpful johnny have you ever had therapy about this stuff yeah yeah i had um i tried well i say later in the book i i had uh attempted to have therapy a few times through my adult life not really earlier not understanding what had gone on but later knowing what had gone on but i had a tendency to want to um to sort of con the therapist that i was okay mm. um you know i sort of, I, I think i say at one point in the book that having therapy without wanting to be honest with yourself is about a bit like having a bath with your coat on you know it's just like literally makes no sense whatsoever and you end up with a lot of mess on the floor but mm. It was only after all the stuff blew up after my dad had died that I had um, some uh, therapy that was uh, absolutely brilliant and very, very quickly. And um, I call her Dr. M in the book. Um, uh, Dr. M actually said to me what, what you said. She said, I was talking about anger because I'd ostensibly gone to her about anger issues that mm. I had and she said to me how would it feel to turn that anger on him and it was just like uh, there's a 
I, again, I'm paraphrasing the book, but there's a Larson cartoon with two mosquitoes and then one of them's skinny little mosquito and the other one's blown up like a huge balloon. And the other one goes, pull out, pull out. You've hit an artery like this. And that's, that's how I felt. It was like, mm. oh, God. and that triggered a ton of stuff for the next few sessions we had. And that was massive for me. Mm. It was like, and that's when I went, yeah, I'm fucking angry. I'm mm. angry with you. And that's when I felt extraordinary uh, sorrow for my young self. Mm. It was Yeah, it was kind of groundbreaking. And then I sort of said to her, around that time, a friend of mine, I, I, I talked to, I shared the sort of story of this with um, a friend of mine. And he said, well, you got to write about it. And I said to the next session I had with um, Dr. M, I said, yeah, a mate of mine said that I should write about it. And she said, well, of course you should. She said, you've been writing about it all your life. Why why wouldn't you write about it now, now that you're starting to understand it a bit? Mm-hmm. And that's when, I, that's kind of, yeah, that's when I started writing writing the book, really. And, and what is the value? I mean, I'm talking about other people who've been through what you've been through. Mm-hmm perhaps people going through it now, you know, is, is sharing and, and knowing other people have been through the same. Is that helpful? Have you spoken or, you know, with other victims of abuse? Is the sharing aspect helpful for you? I haven't as such. At the start of the writing process, um, the mate who uh, said to me that I should, I should write uh, recommended James Rhodes' instrumental to me, mm. which horrific and very moving um but i i I didn't have any um i didn't have any kind of altruistic um reason for doing the book in the first instance i wasn't i absolutely wasn't doing it because i thought it would help other people i was doing because i needed to heave it out but then a week i've actually written um an epilogue in the book and it it says exactly this in the course of sharing the manuscript with editors or lawyers or um, publishers or various people I started getting the odd response back from people going "Uh, yeah this is closer to me than I would dare admit and I worked it out when I wrote this epilogue I worked out I'd shared about 60 copies of the manuscript and seven people had come back with that response. Wow. Over 10%. Over 10%. It's amazing. And I, I, at that point, I thought, and then I wrote this epilogue and I said, you know, if while reading this, you've been taken back to, you know, a bedroom or a tent or a shower or wherever where somebody has done something that has been appalling and then share it or... And I, I put contact details at the end for the Lucy Faithful Foundation, who are they have a, a campaign called Stop It Now, and um, they are, I think, for anybody that has um, experienced anything like I have, the Lucy Faithful Foundation are probably the place to go to initially talk to somebody. Well, I will certainly include a link to that. Uh, organization alongside this this podcast and in my newsletter going forward um listen johnny i'm 
uh, I'm so grateful for your time and for you being so honest and open. Your book really is like immediately powerful. I mean, it's a tough read. It's sometimes a funny read too, I should add, for people who think it's all going to be somber and bleak. I mean, you have a a, a, a tone that I think is very, you know, is, is, is just brilliant and really kind of, you know, can draw can draw a reader in, but it, you know, it, it, it's a bittersweet story of a bittersweet sort of childhood and, and adolescence. Yeah, and um, I, I think it's amazing what you've done. I think the music is incredible, very powerful. It's a fascinating and unique creative project. The way that you're releasing both side by side, and I just wish you all the best with it because I'm, you know, I, I'm just sort of in awe of your of your honesty because it will be helping so many other people. Thanks, Sam. That's, that's kind of you. Thank you. Thanks very much, Johnny. Cheers. All right, mate. Take it easy. Bye-bye. That was the brilliant Johnny Dawkes. His book, Shadow Man, Records of a Life Corrupted, is published on the 27th of October by Red Door, and it costs £12.99. You can pre-order it via the link in the blurb under this podcast. It's a really great book. It's moving. It's painful. And at times, it's quite funny, too. You can also find the Lucy Faithful Foundation, which he mentioned there, at lucyfaithful.org.uk. That link is in my blurb too. If you don't already, then why not subscribe to The Reset at sandelaney.substack.com for loads more podcasts just like this one, regular newsletters and loads more. Thanks for listening, gang. Be lucky. And until next time, don't let the dickheads get you down. <laughs>